0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Ron Mehta, and today I'm excited to speak with Sergio Furio, the founder and CEO of Creditas. Creditas is one of the largest and the fastest growing fintech startups in Brazil that is focused on disrupting the consumer credit market. Over the last few years, Creditas has raised $314 million in total, including a $231 million round of financing earlier this year, led by SoftBank, valuing it at over $750 million. Before founding Creditas, Sergio has held senior positions in Deutsche Bank and the Boston Consulting Group. Sergio, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. To kick off the discussion for the day, uh, do you mind sharing a bit about your background? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um,
1: So I'm originally Spanish, graduated in 2000, um, decided to start my career in investment banking back in Spain. I was at Deutsche Bank. And after five years, decided to move into consulting to have like more like a generalist approach. In 2000, I started in BCG in, in Spain. And then in 2008, I moved also within BCG to the New York office. So I spent another four years in the New York office until um, I decided to become an entrepreneur,
0: and that was 2012. Got it. That's basically it. That's amazing, that's, that's super interesting. Um, one question, you know, that I had was, uh, you mentioned after BCG, you decided to be an entrepreneur. Uh, did you know deep down that, you know, you always wanted to be an entrepreneur or was that over, over the 10, 12 years you were working where you felt maybe entrepreneurship is the right thing for me? So honestly, I think that I never thought about entrepreneurship as something for me. Um,
1: the, uh, I was born and raised from a family of like a normal private employees, middle class type of thing. And, uh, you know, just basically study to get to like a, a well-paid job, but definitely no entrepreneurship in the way that I was thinking about the world. Uh, I guess that one thing that, I, that I've always been, though, is like someone that really wants to take ownership of everything that, uh, that I do. So, and I think that there are not like that many things that differentiate an entrepreneur with like someone that is an executive in a, in a big company, but that suffers because things are not moving fast enough or, or because you are not attacking the right type of problem. So I, I guess like what happened in my case was uh, in 2011, I was sort of like um, thinking out like a change in my life. I had been like four years doing this huge uh, technology transformation for a US bank. And uh, the project had started like uh, in 2008, 2009. And four years later, it was clear that most of the things that we were delivering were not going to be, like, very useful. And uh, recently, <laughs> uh, recently, like, uh, the, the world had changed so fast in those four or five years uh, from a society uh, that was, like, uh, going to branches and using computers to a society that was mostly using cell phones. And uh, and that technology transformation didn't include, like, anything related to mobile. So it was, like, sort of like uh, you were, like, shipping the code by 2011 but with the mentality of 2008 when iPhone was just like in the early days. Right. So uh, I guess that, um, that, that was one component. The other component was um, the, uh, one of my best friends. Uh, he, uh, he used to work at BCG as well with me. Yeah, he did the MBA in Colombia, And uh, when he finished the MBA, he said, no, I, I'm not going to return to BCG. I said, what the hell, man? What are you going to do? And uh, he started a the company. And, um, and that sort of like was like an inspiration for me. Uh, because that was like the only reference that I had in the entrepreneurship world. Yeah, obviously, you know, after a couple of years being an entrepreneur, then, you know, like everyone in the industry, but uh, but before that I had like no reference. So I think that the combination of having like one person that was like very close to me, showing me that there was like a way of getting out from the comfort zone of the corporate world and, and uh, a, um, wearing like a pair of sneakers and trying to do something by yourself. That was one component. The other one is the frustration of uh, seeing that things were not moving enough in the banking industry, and uh, and the realization that there had to be like a better way of doing things faster
0: and closer to what the consumers were looking for. Got it. I think that's super relevant to our listeners, uh, many of whom maybe in similar jobs or we're looking to get into similar jobs. So going into uh, you know the next question, then. Uh, so you decided you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, where did the idea of creditors come from? At that point, yeah, you know, you go back in time, 2012, fintech
1: was not like a huge phenomenon. Yeah, it was like probably in the early days. They were like, yeah, they were like the, the lending clubs, so and prospers of this world, yeah, almost like starting. And uh, since I was living in New York, I guess that the initial reaction was, let's say let's build something similar in the U.S. And, uh, sort of like went through like different verticals and didn't see like any specific edge that I was like super passionate about. And uh, I wanted to do something in fintech because uh, that's the only thing that I had like been doing for like 12 years before that. I I could relate like very well with the problems of big banks and inefficiency, productivity, lack of technology and all those things in financial services. So I thought that I I may have like some competitive advantage for that. You know, I was dating... This uh, uh, girl that became my wife, but we were just like three months dating, and I was uh, talking to her. That was Sylvia, my today is my wife. Uh, So uh, I was talking to her. Yeah, I want to become an entrepreneur, and I'm looking for opportunities. I don't know what exactly to do. And uh, in a random conversation, she uh, she's Brazilian, so she suddenly suddenly she says, um, "Yeah, in Brazil people pay like two hundred percent for a loan." Yeah, and I say that's uh, that's impossible. So that. Grabbed my attention, and uh, I, uh, you know, the next day I started like uh, logged into the central bank of Brazil information, started like downloading reports, trying to figure out what why was that that was happening. And, and in just two weeks, I said, Okay, so I, I'm gonna move there. And I told Silvia, and she said, You're totally crazy. We, uh, <laughs> you, you have no idea about Brazil, you don't even speak the language, so you have never been an entrepreneur. Uh, what are the odds of making <laughs> a, successful, a successful movement? So I guess it's one of those things that um, it, to me, it was appealing because the my, my our initial thesis had always been that the problem in Brazil is the a lack of productivity and inefficiency, uh, a very extensive uh, distribution network of branches uh, that have like very low volumes compared to the number of branches that you have. And uh, so that, you know, the, the, the thought was like, very straightforward. It's like technology is gonna is gonna be like a game changer. Yeah. So the cell phone is gonna completely change the way that people interact with the banking industry. So we we want to play that game. And remember that Brazil is not the US, right? So right. Uh, probably you you are lagging like three to four years in terms of adoption of technology at that point. Uh, so mobile penetration or smartphone penetration at that point probably was like just like fifteen percent or something, versus the US that probably was like already like seventy uh percent so um a, a lot of things you could learn from the players at that point and uh and uh you know coming up also with the realization of uh, you know we want to build this business that has like a very clear uh, mission and uh and 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 it's basically the view of a of a world in brazil where people actually pay like affordable prices for the debt so that they can use that debt to improve their lives get better education get better houses and and things like that so yeah so that was that that was like a very random
0: conversation with my now <laughs> wife and that right. they related to you know go deeper into the topic no i think that's that's uh, that's probably the most unique way uh, uh, I, i've heard uh, you know that if you're going to take a risk you really run right into it don't know the language haven't been in that country but you find the problem interesting just go and start up and it kind of works out so that's 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 phenomenal Um, So first time, first time. So just like building on that. So I think that first time entrepreneurs they always
1: run into trouble because uh, you know nobody knows them. And uh, uh, we think uh, when we are coming from the corporate world that we know it all. (laughs) And we try to apply all the all the frameworks, all the knowledge that we have. And uh, you know since we are rock stars, then we are going (laughs) to kill it. And and the problem is that you know entrepreneurship is has like some you know different components that are very relevant. And uh, and uh, and I guess that you know 1st up entrepreneurship is always tougher than uh, than than someone that has already built a company before. Yeah. Uh, so since it's tougher, uh, I think that
0: you know you you shouldn't be like thinking it twice and just jump into it. <laughs> and, and and you will you will learn by by doing. It. No, that's perfect. I think that's a great piece of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, I think a great segue on this uh, on, on what you were talking about. Uh, you know what creditas does really. Values uh, would be, uh, you know, a deep dive into maybe what are the key products uh, that Creditas has today in the market. Who are the customers for you, and what's the value proposition? Um, so, so a bit of context on on the uh, um, on the financial services
1: sector in in Brazil. I think that's helpful to understand why we do what we do. Uh, there are a couple of anomalies that we have seen in the country. Anomaly number one is, you know, this thing about like having. of the population paying for unsecured loans at a rate of 200% plus. And um, so that's a, it's it's a relatively big problem. 80% of the net interest margin that the banks get are related to these products, which are sort of like toxic because of the high rate. Um, And when you sort of like uh, do a double click on why I see that they charge so much, in reality, you realize that it's not because of the default rates are high, or it's not because of the funding cost is high. Yeah, it's true that both are relatively high in Brazil, but the most uh, relevant reason is that the branch network is adding a lot of cost to the PNL of the banking industry. Right, so it's it's mostly about productivity and efficiency more yeah. than anything. Okay, yeah. so that's the first anomaly, right? So the need to change the way that Brazilians get indebted, uh, and then the second anomaly is um, is in the in in the way that Brazilians own property. So astonishingly, when I was like looking into the mortgage market and into the real estate market, the residential real estate, I saw that seventy percent 7-0, percent of the Brazilian uh, homeowners, they, um they don't have a mortgage. So they own the property outright, right? Okay. And at the same time, those guys are taking loans. Those personal loans at two hundred percent, right? Wow. So, um, so only thirty percent of the of the Brazilian population that are homeowners, they actually have a mortgage. Everyone else they, they don't, and uh, and then the, the, also in, in from from in that space. So, homeownership in Brazil is massive. It's seventy five percentage points. So three quarters of the Brazilian population they are owners uh, that compares to the u.s which uh, uh, you know today is roughly like at 62 percent or something so brazilians are big time homeowners and actually you realize that they are rich it is just that they don't see that wealth because the wealth is in the in the properties that they own
0: right uh,
1: since they don't leverage the property they don't use that money to anything else um so it's sort of like uh, they invest in a property they they uh, own it outright and therefore they never see cash coming out from their property because they are not like trying to improve their lives, like investing in education, investing in a, even like a home renovation. Right? Right. Um, a similar problem happens with cars. So, the car industry is also like a big business in Brazil. A, um, you have like 50 million car fleet in Brazil, 75% of those cars have no debt. Right? And the reason in that case is because Brazilians keep the car for longer. So seven, seven years on average. So that means that after three years, they have already like repaid for the car financing, but they still own an asset, right? So our, our approach to the problem was, hey, we're not going to be smarter than the banks in underwriting a credit for a personal loan. They, they have like tons of data. And in, in Brazil, you don't have a credit history. It doesn't exist, the credit history. You only have delinquency, but not credit history. So instead of trying to fight the banks with the same product that they are using, uh, so those so-called personal loans, uh, let's create a new product category, which is based on using those properties as collateral for a lending product, for a much better lending product. And so we started like uh, building the two products that we have been running for six, seven years, a, um, which is a, a specific type of home equity loan and uh, something similar to a title loan with, with a car as a collateral, a, um, the, the big difference between those products in Brazil versus the one that are typically offered in the US is our twofold is one, these are for premium customers, right? So this is a, a title loan in the US is like for the, um, the, the bottom of the pyramid. So right. those ones that don't have access to credit, here we do that for premium customers. Uh, and the home equity, instead of being a second lien, we do it on a first lien. Because since the customer owns the property outright, there's no need to place a second lien on the property. Right? So using the using the cars and the houses as a collateral, obviously um, you can uh, not only decrease the default rate, but also you can extend the maturity of the debt. And um, you can also reduce the rate significantly. So the combination of extended maturity, reducing delinquency, and uh, and reducing the debt cost, it creates a massive effect on the installment that the customers are paying. So typically the customers come to us with, uh, let's say like $5,000 in debt, uh, in which they are paying like a 200% on a loan that is like a two years maturity, and we move that debt into um, 15% interest rate per year, um, significantly longer maturity, we go up to 15 years. And then suddenly they realize that they have more debt capacity and that they can take some more cash to, uh, for example, increase the, the, uh, the company that they own. Uh, they, have like a, they are like a small business owner or get like a better education for the kids and, uh, or make like a home renovation of the, of the apartment. Right? So it's all about how can you restructure the debt of the Brazilian population by leveraging on the properties and extending maturity and reducing rates. So we operate today two products on, on, those, uh, uh, on those two assets. And um, we have, uh, actually last month, we announced the acquisition of a, another fintech company down here in Brazil that focuses on payroll loans, which are basically discounting the installment directly from your employer. Um, at the end of the day, it's, like, it's another type of collateral, right? So you can use your car, you can use your house, or you can use your salary as a collateral to get access to better terms, and um, that's uh, we started uh, playing with uh, with this company like uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I actually was like a, a personally an, an angel investor of the company. I incubated the company here, and then uh, um, you know we decided that it was a great moment now to combine uh, also this company and and grow it faster.
0: That's that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you know what creditas is doing and this gives uh, obviously our listeners a great insight into what's happening there um i'm curious as you now look ahead over the next 3 to 5 years uh, what's in store for creditas
1: we have recently been awarded uh, a um, financial institution license that allows us to operate similar uh, in similar terms to a bank we cannot get The is that we can use it for loans, but uh, we can do most of the things that the banks can do. So that opens up like a a bunch of opportunities from, um, you know, doing those payroll logs that that I was mentioning, uh, doing the loans by ourselves instead of having to partner with other banks. um, And uh, it also allows us to um, offer payments products in connection with the loans that we we also offer. So one area that we are going to be developing is that, um, you know, expansion of the product portfolio. We came to the realization that, you know, most of the times when we interact with customers, their problem is not only a financial problem. It's not that they uh, need money because they need to do a home renovation. It's that home renovation yeah, is a problem for them. They are not specialists, they are not professionals in doing home renovations, and they uh, ultimately overspending things that they shouldn't. They, um, so one thing that we are yeah, working on, uh, this is sort of like a, trying to set the foundation of like a new greatest is uh, verticalizing in the whole customer journey instead of just offering financial products. So one of the things that we started doing three months ago was um, partnering with the customer to do the home renovation. So offering for free the home renovation project uh, and then executing it together with the customer. Another example is, uh, you know, we realized that um, our customers that have like a, uh, auto equity loan with us yeah, yeah. every two to three years they want to change the car and what was happening was that we were losing that customer because when you want to switch the car you just cancel the debt of that car and get like a new loan with a new car that you're going to be getting so we are seeing this as uh, instead of seeing it as a threat we see this as a massive opportunity in which uh, we need to get closer to the customer and we need to understand that that customer actually may need to change the car because the car is getting older and older, and that increases the maintenance cost. So what we are working on now is on uh, building a product in which I offer to the customer, switching the car. So buying the car from the customer, selling a new car for that customer, and just transferring the debt from the existing product to the new car that he's getting. So we think that people tend to take um, uh, inefficient decisions just because they are not professionals at doing what they are doing. I remember my grandfather was telling me that the most expensive thing is to be poor, because when you're poor, you really don't know how things work. We want to offer a complete experience to the customer, not only offering the lending product, but also solving the problem that they have in doing that home renovation, in, in getting that car, and, and, and you know, things related to this.
0: Understood. Uh, so very exciting times uh, for creditors to look forward to. Now, switching gears a bit, you know, a lot of our listeners are actually aspiring and budding entrepreneurs. Uh, so curious you know what are the three things that you know you've learned in your entrepreneurial journey uh, that you would you know advise uh, new entrepreneurs to keep in mind when they are starting up
1: um, so, so i think that uh, the first one and and, and it's always the, the same one that i that it tell to everyone that is thinking how oh, like becoming an entrepreneur is that they need to teach themselves resilience um, these things take longer than what you expect yeah uh, it took us forever to crack the code on what product to do uh, basically I started the company in 2012, and uh, by 2015, early 2015, so three years later, I only had like uh, 12 employees. Um, and, uh, and then we hit the business model, and then you know, those 12 employees became 60 by the end of the year, 150 the year after, 250 the year after, 500 by the end of last year, and now we are at 900. Right? Uh, but you really need to have the patience. And, uh, and test things until the model uh, ultimately comes. Also, like a uh, question that we had in, in that point, it was like we were not properly funded at the beginning. The, the funding only came in 2015. Before that, those three years were a nightmare. Uh, and the easiest thing would have been uh, to say, hey, let, let me go back to the corporate world because it's difficult to pay the bills. So resilience definitely like, uh, is, is something that is very relevant. And um, uh, yeah, the second, think is work on your storytelling. I think that, you know, building companies and uh, out from nothing, um, you, you need to convince a bunch of people, obviously yourself first, but uh, you need to convince like uh, the early hires, you need to convince investors, you, you need, to, convince investors, uh, you need to, um, to, to ask people to get a, get a haircut in, the, in their salary payment to come and work for you in exchange of a piece of paper that is going to say that they're going to get some shares eventually. Storytelling is one of those arts that every entrepreneur needs to master. Without that, it's very difficult in the modern world to actually be properly funded and, and, hire, those, uh, and hire those initial employees. Uh, and then the third, uh, the third thing is, uh, I think that we need, to, uh, we need to work on, we have like a bunch of problems uh, in the world today. And, and, and I think that you need to focus on finding a problem that you love uh, to, to solve and, and a problem that you think that you have like some skills that are differential. Why, why is it that you're going to be the guy that is going to be able to, 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 um, to build that? So finding out that problem and, and then after finding it, um, working relentlessly on the solution, that's something that uh, all entrepreneurs need to have. I would focus on a very material and, and, and a specific problem. I like problems that I know well. It's true that sometimes People say that when you know too much about something, then you're, less, uh, you're looking less for innovation because you're too familiar with, the, uh, with that thing. Yeah, I guess that that's true on one side. On the other side, really reinventing the wheel yeah, is not like the best idea. So focus on a problem that you know well that has like, a massive impact and don't think small. Yeah, think as big as possible. Selecting a large market allows you to fail yeah, constantly right because you can reinvent your business if you're playing like a niche business and you fail then you have like no ways of like escaping from there so we have failed multiple times and we just like uh, since we focus on a huge problem which is you know lending in brazil multi-trillion dollar industry then even if you failed in one approach you can find like another one that still can, can can support you right? i think that those are the yeah quite relevant things for us
0: no, that's, that's uh, you know, that's super useful. Um, on the last point, I think the way that you were suggesting is more bottoms up, uh, looking within yourself and, you know, figuring out where your skill sets lie and where your passion lies to figure out the next idea. But I'm also curious if you want to look top down today uh, on the fintech space, what are some of the areas uh, which you believe, uh, you know, hold a lot of promise or are going to become big over the next few years? Okay, so this is a thing. I'm, I'm a bit bearish on
1: fintech. Uh, or just fintech per se, if you want. <laughs> and, and, and the reason is, and the reason is because fintech problems are in nature; they are relatively simple to solve. It's a, uh, you know, fintech is, is is full of data, and uh, and software can uh, solve most of those problems. The thing is that the moment that you solve it, then a bunch of people is going to solve it uh, as well. And um, and uh, so, what's your competitive advantage? Uh, how can you? Sustain a business that uh, it becomes easy and that there's like a bunch of people that uh, it's easy for them as well The reason why we selected For example home equity loans as the first product was because it was like damn complex because it's complex It's bad because then it will take you a while to actually crack the code on how to do it properly but on the other side (laughs) It's gonna be complex for everyone, right? And uh, when, uh, when everyone else wants to copy you or do the same thing that you're doing, then they will go through the same problems that you went. So we like complex problems. But the problem is that there are not like that many in fintech. So most of them are relatively easy. And uh, so I'm a bit bearish on that. And, uh, and if you think about you know, what is happening in the, in, the, in the ecosystem, in the tech ecosystem, right? you see more and more players becoming fintech players but not as a starting point, but just like uh, putting in conjunction with a product or a service. So take Amazon uh, offering you know, payment services and offering financing for the customers or take Apple and offering the Apple Card. And, uh, and obviously, you know, all the efforts that, that Facebook is doing with uh, WhatsApp uh, as a potential payment method um, and, and so on and so on, right? So when, when you have traffic and when you are a platform, then plugging the financial services product it's becoming easier and easier. And ultimately, people, they don't want to interact with banks. They want to interact with companies that they love. And loving a bank is something that people, they don't really need. Uh, it's not something that they, that they actually feel passionate about. <laughs> so the things that, that, going back to your question, right? That bottom up I'm more attracted to is how fintech companies can penetrate further into the value chain outside of, outside of the financial product itself. How can you create human experience for someone? And uh, and if you think about it, you know, like uh, some adjacencies that we are interested in. How can you manage the cars, the mobility for the population with a, a financial product embedded, so that you can innovate in both the the service and the financial product? Uh, and we are very interested on on things like uh, how can you uh, do a more efficient home renovation? How can you support? the people that want to sell the apartment and selling the, the apartment by renovating the property before actually sending it to the market. So those things are, uh, we are very interested. Then if you get into the payroll space, right? Uh, so the payroll is like an, an, an amazing asset that people own. It's like an intangible asset, right? It's a, it's a right to get paid by the end of the month. And, um, so we are very interested in things that happen in the, uh, in the HR area, and and how you can build more efficiency. Um, yes, using some financial products, but more importantly about the problem that the HR departments have or that the employees have. Right. Um, I think that there's like a plenty of innovation in fintech that is going to occur as well in you know the way that people live, uh, again the way that people drive, the way that people gets paid. So I think that going deeper into the customer journey and presenting like very clear value propositions. That's uh,
0: that's the space where uh, we are interested in. Understood. Uh, I think that's super insightful. Um, just shifting again uh, a bit towards people who may not be wanting to start up, but are excited about fintech and joining a startup, any advice that you would have for them? Um, so joining a startup is always like about, you know, how much appetite for risk
1: you have and what's the moment in your career. So post MBA, yeah, you know, you have like a mixed feeling, right? On one side, you are ready to um, to change your life because actually you, you're just getting back from, uh, from the academic world, right? So it may be like a great moment. On the other side, you may have like some debts that you want to cancel before you do that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so, so I, I guess that, you know, like uh, starting up something from scratch for, uh, for an MBA student is something that has been very uh, successful. For example, in geographies here in, in, in Brazil. So people like finishing the MBA and then right after that, founding the company up front again, yeah, very relevant to secure the funding so that you can have like a normal life yeah, unless you are already coming from uh, from rich money. Um, if that's not the case, then joining like a um, a larger startup, but still with the same culture, I think that's something that can be very helpful for you. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be understanding the way that a startup operates. What are the key levers? You're going to be able to be part of a team that is growing at scale. I think that's the most relevant thing. So what you want to be in is in a startup that grows fast uh, and that have like all those problems. I think that's one of the most uh, interesting talent that we always lack, right? So this is not about the talent that is gonna set up a startup with uh, five employees or something. It's the talent that is gonna take the startup from let's say like 200 employees and bring it to like 10,000 employees. Uh, it's a very scarce talent and the capabilities are a mixture of the executive world and of the startup world. So I think that right after MBA, for example, joining like a larger startup can be something very uh, interesting and unique. I think that a couple of things to take into consideration in those cases is one, what is my entry valuation? I think that's uh, at the end of the day, uh, you want to go to startup with some skin in the game and having some equity. And uh, then therefore the entry valuation is relevant. And number two, which may be like related, is how fast that company is growing. And uh, number three, is there like a sustainable model, uh, business model that they are operating, right? So I think uh, today, you know, because, uh, because of the amount of capital that is available for startups, uh, um, some of them may run into trouble because the model, the unit economics are not proven yet, but you can, you can uh, speed up growth just with the venture capital money. I think it's good to think twice about, you know, what is the path of this company? About you know what's the sustainability of the mo- of the model, how unique that model is, right? And uh, we-, we tend to be attracted to like uh, companies because of, you know it's like a great valuation and so on. And at the end of the day, um, big valuation doesn't necessarily mean good for the new entrant, right? So the-, the new entrant is looking for a business case that makes sense, a company that you can scale rapidly, and more importantly, that you can learn, right? And and ultimately, I think that that transition from the uh, executive world into the entrepreneurship world. Um, in my case, what I totally crazy of, like starting from zero with like, very little references, I think that today is much easier to join first someone that is already doing that, uh, join a company, learn as much as possible, and then while you're in the company, you're going to be like being exposed to uh, methods that you didn't learn before, that you didn't know that it, they even exist, and new way of doing things. And you're going to have time to think about, you know, what's the venture that you would create uh, by your own.
0: That's, uh, that's an amazing response. And uh, I feel a lot of the elements that you spoke about that people should look for are there in Credita. So, uh, you know, that's amazing that you build that kind of a culture. Uh, My last question here, uh, you know, before we wrap up is, we have spoken a lot about the work and how you build business, etc. What's Sergio like outside of work? Uh, What do you enjoy doing in your free time?
1: Um so I'm I'm a lot into sports. Um so I'm a I'm a runner. I um I love waking up early in the morning, call it like six AM or something, and then yeah, doing my daily doing my daily training. I, I love long runs and uh so I would say that sports is like a, a big piece of my life. Um, the uh, obvious other one is family. So I have two daughters, two and four, my wife, I love them, and uh and you know, you, you, you always you always need to combine your own hobbies with uh, being with your family, being present. I think that, you know, this thing about like, uh, yeah, shut down the cell phone and then just focus on whatever that you're doing. You don't need to spend like uh, 10 hours a day with your kids, but the hour or the two hours that you spend with them, you better be focused instead of like being half here and half there. Um, And I would say that a third component is uh, I love uh, the business world. I love uh, building companies and thinking about, how to solve problems. So I'm, I'm a very active angel investor uh, down here in, in in Brazil, but also like in other parts of the world. And uh, I love being in contact with other, um, you know, fellow entrepreneurs, understanding what's the problem that they are trying to solve. This is all about like reading as well, right? So I really like consume every piece of paper that I can, get in front of me, and uh, that helps me, uh, get like a better sense of where the world is heading to. And some of the things that you learn from one industry can be Applied to other industries, so that's why I don't only invest in fintech. I invest in multiple sectors. I take some learning from that, and then I reapply it to creators. I think it may be like a better uh, entrepreneur. Uh, to be at the same time an angel investor. So I think that, that those are the three things: family,
0: business, is still in the the uh, non-working hours, and uh, and sports. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Sergio. This was wonderful to chat with you. Uh, thank you right. for taking the time out hope it helps yeah
1: thank you